Good afternoon. Thanks so much for being with us. Lots to get to today. We'll have plenty of time for more of your feedback, talking about the new travel restrictions that were announced earlier today by the federal government. We are going to find out more about what exactly people can expect if they are still traveling. Also going to take a look at something non-COVID-19 related a bit later on in the program. DNA, which has confirmed the identity of human remains found on Vancouver Island several years, decades after a man was reported missing. We're going to take a look at some of the technologies being used and the advances that have been made when it comes to DNA and forensics evidence. That's coming up in the second hour of the program. But first, as you've been hearing in the news, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau earlier today announced tough restrictions when it comes to international travel. Those include limiting airports where international flights can land, as well as a quarantine period at the of the traveler. Those with negative test results will then be able to quarantine at home under significantly increased surveillance and enforcement. Those with positive tests will be immediately required to quarantine in designated government facilities to make sure they're not carrying variants of potential concern. Let's bring in Claire Newell joining us now to talk more about this, the president of Travel Best Bets. Claire, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, my pleasure, Jill. It's been a very busy day just, uh, you know, going through all of these announcements. There's a lot in them. Yeah, I was just going to say I was so happy that you had time for us because I'm sure your phones are ringing an email with people wanting to get more details on this. Uh, What is your response to these restrictions that were announced today? You know, Jill, they didn't come as a surprise. For weeks, there's been hints from the federal government that more restrictions were coming down. And this week, uh, we heard in the announcement that the UK had imposed a 10-day mandatory hotel quarantine um, for people that were nationals returning. So very similar to what Canada has um, they are, there's a ban on non-essential travel into the country by anyone, not a Canadian citizen or PR. And that's been around since March of 2020. And it's not easy to get in. There's a very small list of people who are allowed to come in, you know, some international students and, um, family members and things. Um, and we have, of course, had the travel advisory in place to avoid non-essential travel. And that's been in place since also March of 2020. But this was a clear um, indication by the federal government, really strongly discouraging international travel. And the reality is, is that what they've uh, they've put in place with Air Canada, WestJet, Sunwing and Transat to suspend flights to Mexico and the Caribbean, the majority of those flights are out of eastern Canada and they are going to be suspended effective January 31st through until the end of April. Those were essentially people going on vacation still. Right. That's not essential travel. And so, um, you know, it seems as though the, those partners have worked collaboratively with the government here and they will be offering refunds. Not a lot of people impacted, um, though there, you know, a lot, most people have been following the rules. Um, but unfortunately, even with all of the, um, advisories, the fines, you know, it, it's big fines. It's six months in jail and or $750,000, um, that you have to pay if you break quarantine. Uh, but this is one way that they can absolutely, absolutely control it with a variant, um, 
the threats of that. Uh, And you talked about the cancellation to the Caribbean destinations in Mexico. What about flights, though, to places like Hawaii or Florida, those sun destinations? So it's interesting. Um, At this stage of the game, no U.S., including Hawaii, flights have been affected at the moment. That may change. And, you know, there uh, I've been asked many times, well, what about the other airlines that are going to those destinations? Well, there are other you know, airlines that are going. Um, but again, we shouldn't be traveling unless it's for absolutely essential travel. And if you, if you're questioning is, is it essential that I go? Then you're probably not needing to. So are you still having people, I mean, even prior to today's announcement, calling you or booking vacations? And, and if so, what do you say to them? Um, you know, we get the odd person and we very clearly say that we're not booking people at this stage of the game. It doesn't mean we're not advertising travel, Joe. Um, people are looking for something, but we are acutely aware of all of the travel restrictions. Anything that's to sun destinations would be for fall of 2021, based on what the government is saying that there should be herd immunity and vaccines um, widely distributed. Um, the majority are local, and we still have local restrictions in play until February 5th, and we're expecting that to be extended today. Um, so with an announcement later later today by Bonnie Henry and John Horgan. And and you you need to be aware of that. It doesn't mean you can't dream and put something on the books, but you need to be able to um, be flexible with those and you should be have the ability to change those if you need to we are get there's a light you know the vaccine is coming uh, but this is absolutely not the time to be traveling so do you have clients then or have you booked people then that now are abroad or in one of these destinations that will be coming home and have to quarantine and test under the new rules we don't um, at this stage of the game, we ran reports, and up to April 30th, we don't. Um, we're going to run a little bit deeper. So of the Air Canada, WestJet, Sunwing, and Transat flights, we don't have anyone affected, thank goodness. We're very grateful for that because we're on a skeleton staff here, obviously. Travel's been really impacted. Um, but there, we'll, we're now running reports on any other airlines that potentially may be affected, but... Um, what I am concerned about are those people, particularly snowbirds, who may need to be notified by family if they are away, because the other part of this is the the need to quarantine, and that's going to start early in February at the the passengers' expense uh, until they basically until they get the test results back from a PCR test. So now there's going to be two two tests: the PCR or lamp test required pre-flight to get back to Canada, and then there will be Starting in February, um, the, the uh, mandatory PCR test here, the three up to three day quarantine until you get a negative test. And then the remainder, if you have a negative uh, result, you get to quarantine the rest at at home. It's expensive. Mm-hmm. It's two thousand Canadian dollars, what they're saying. But that um, that's not without precedent. Australia has been requiring most travelers to quarantine at government arranged hotels for 14 days. But at 2,800 Australian dollars per adult, they also have a family rate of 26, uh, sorry, uh, about 4,600 Australian dollars. We have no details on what, say, a couple coming back or a family of four coming back will be. We, we've just been told around $2,000 and then that will include the private PCR test. The UK, they have a 10 day quarantine and they have been told it's about a thousand 
pounds or just shy of $1,400 Canadian at their own expense. So it does seem a bit expensive, um, but, you know, there's security involved, there's PCR tests involved, um, and the hotel. And when you were told that, because this is where there's some confusion, I think, too, is that the $2,000, it sounds like, is for the three days and the testing when you come back into the country. But for people that test positive, then then go or, or remain in a designated government facility, do you then have to pay more to stay in that facility for the rest of your quarantine? Yeah, well, that, we don't have the details on that. We The other question is, what about food? Um, right. Is that included or is it not? Um, the other question that I'm getting a lot of is, what if what if uh, about the people who have vaccines um, and proof of cert- certification of that? Do they have to go through all of this? And we don't have details on that either. I know, you know, around the world, there's trying to get this um, uh, kind of a... Uh, uh, a type of system that is globally recognized that if you have a vaccine, a certificate, and you show it that it will somehow allow you to avoid all of the travel restrictions worldwide, that is not in place. It's nowhere near in place yet. Uh, I know IATA is working on that with something called the Travel Pass. Uh, the World Economic Forum is working on one with the, um, it's called a Compass Pass. They're, they're nowhere near ready. So at this stage of the game, a vaccine isn't doing you any good as all far right. as avoiding travel restrictions. All right. Well, Claire, thanks so much for jumping on the show with us. So on such short notice to talk about this, always appreciate your expertise on this. Thank you. My pleasure, Jill. Well, the group Safe Care BC has been a vocal advocate for the use of COVID-19 rapid tests as a screening tool when it comes to long-term care. Uh, They've put out some new information along with researchers at Simon Fraser University. This was a modeling exercise and it used one specific rapid test and looked at the results. And joining me to talk about those results is Jennifer Lyle, the CEO of Safe Care BC, and Paul Tupper, who is a professor in the Department of Mathematics at SFU and a co-author of this report. Thanks to both of you for being here. Thanks for having me. Uh, Jen Lyle, I'll start with you. And if you can explain a bit about what prompted Safe Care BC to go forward and do this type of investigation. Yeah, well, one of the things that we wanted to do is we wanted to better understand how we could better bolster our current screening practices because what we've been hearing quite often in the sector is a lot of these cases of people who were either asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic going into work and then finding out that they're actually positive for COVID-19. So we wanted to understand better um, how we could catch those people because they're not being caught with our current screening practices. And uh, I'll bring in Paul as well. Paul, can you explain how the the modeling te- how the modeling worked and what uh, you actually did? Sure. So <clears throat> what we assumed that we you know we considered the Pan Bio rapid antigen test, and that is about ninety percent sensitive, which means that if somebody is infectious, about ninety percent of the time we are going to see that. And then we considered um, different different ways of implementing it. For so, for example staff could be tested every three days or every week. And then we looked at, um, we had a model where um, we would see how many outbreaks would result and what the size of the outbreaks would be. And we investigated when we, we, when we implemented those different screening um, systems, how, 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 how many, by how much would the number of outbreaks be reduced? So we found that if you, if you're able to screen, um, if you're able to screen, Staff every three days, we got you know between um, uh, 45 to 55 percent reduction in the number of outbreaks that you would have. And if you do it only every seven days, there's a more modest reduction. 
But in, in, in either case, it seems very worthwhile. Uh, but it sounds like then the, the goal would be if you were going to adopt something like this, you would want to do it every three days to get that level of, 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 of impact. Yes, that would be better. I, you know, and then there's a matter of the practicality. But, but, it, but I mean, there is a substantial, substantial impact with both. And so, Jen, what are your thoughts on this? Because we have had so much pushback to even bringing in this kind of testing in long-term care. Yeah, well, it's interesting because we know that this is a strategy that's been implemented in other countries and in other jurisdictions. And one of the criticisms I would anticipate people would have is, well, we're vaccinating people now. Why, do, why is that not good enough? And what was really interesting is that even when we took into account, you know, vaccine uptake of about 70 to 90 percent, and we put that into the model, it was still effective to do the additional layer of screening with these rapid tests. So to me, that that speaks to the importance of looking at that as a strategy, because ultimately what we're seeing now is we're seeing multiple instances of people who are either pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic who are unknowingly seeding outbreaks and wreaking havoc in our long-term care homes. Uh, And Paul, what do you say then to one of the arguments or criticisms that rapid tests can be considered or are considered not as accurate as the PCR test? That's true, that, but there's no need to, we don't, we're not saying, um, you know, don't do PCR testing. I mean, so we, we want to do this in addition we, to, to PCR testing. So, in fact, when someone does get a, a positive result in one of these tests, of course, the natural thing to do would, would be to get confirmation from the PCR test. But in the meantime, then you can, they, that person can isolate and, that, you know, that, that person won't go to work. So definitely both is a place for both. And I'm guessing, and I think you touched on this, the, the idea of testing people who are asymptomatic, how important is that? That's very important. So, so there's estimates that up, up over half of, of all transmission of COVID is, is done when people don't have symptoms. Uh, and that's because, you know, when people have symptoms, usually they're more careful. Um, so, so, and I mean, if, if the, uh, if the current system where we only test people that have symptoms worked, then we wouldn't have had all the outbreaks that we've had until now. And so um, we have to do something different. And, and I, I, we think that this rapid, anti- rapid testing is, a, is a, good, a good start. And Jen, do you see this as something that logistically, could we bring in rapid testing and be able to effectively test staff and, and anybody else in long-term care every three days? You know, it's interesting. I've talked to some of our, our members about this and asked them, you know, if these tests showed up on your doorstep today, would you be able to implement it? And what I've heard is yes. You know, yes, we're, we're tight for staff, but everybody recognizes what's at stake when we have an outbreak and just the heartache that can bring. So I think that's, that's really important. And I think the other thing that we need to remember as well is that you know, we're in, yes, we are in the middle of our vaccination effort, but we know that we have delays in delivery and we know it's going to be several months um, until we have any layer or, or level of herd immunity or community immunity. So why not look at these strategies that we could implement now? Uh, could there be a way to go ahead with it? Uh, I mean, it does have the support of the BC Care Providers Association have come on in this program uh, talking about this. The seniors advocate has come on in favor several times uh, talking about this. Would there be a way, do you think, for long-term care facilities to go ahead without provincial approval? 
You know, I think there's a lot of things possible in this sector. But one thing I will say is you know, the, the provincial government was the recipient of 1.3 million rapid tests from the federal government. And these tests have an expiry date. It would be a shame for them to, to sit in a warehouse, collect dust, and ultimately not be used because they hit their best before date. And Paul, wanted I'll end with you asking you again. This is one tool, obviously, in the toolkit. How important do you think this tool is? I think, um, you know, for long-term care, it's extremely important. I mean, if it's, if it's possible to reduce the number of introductions of COVID by, by 50% with this, this tool, that's, it's, that's very powerful. It's hard to, to find uh, anything else that's as good as that. But, of course, um, the other important thing is that we keep down numbers of COVID in the community by social distancing and by, um, you know, uh, continuing what we're doing. We have to keep the, the more... the the lower we keep numbers in the community, the fewer introductions there's going to be in long-term care. Right, because remembering or recognizing that this is the test that, that catches it, it doesn't prevent it. Right, and we can we can only we're only we you know the test isn't going to catch everything. All right, well because we sorry, go ahead. Yeah, because because um, you know even if we were doing it every three days, there's still there's still a window of opportunity for someone to to become infected and we miss it. But it's, it it can it can make a, a huge difference. All right. Well, thanks to both of you for coming on the show to share uh, these findings uh, with uh, with the show. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thanks very much, Jill. We are continuing uh, to talk about the travel restrictions uh, that were announced earlier this morning. Justin Trudeau talking about quarantine uh, rules that will be uh, put in place and the cancellation of several flights. Air Canada, WestJet, Sunwing and Air Transat are cancelling air service to all Caribbean destinations and Mexico starting this Sunday up until April 30th. Dr. Anne-Marie Nichol is a researcher at the Faculty of Health Sciences at SFU and joins me on the line now. Thanks so much for making some time for us. Thanks, Jill, for having me on. Do you think the travel restrictions announced today go far enough? I think they're a good first Step, but I think it's a step that we probably should have made a while ago. But I, I welcome the measures. A lot of people are, are mentioning that, saying exactly that, that it is a good move. But why didn't we do this months ago? Why didn't we do this when other countries were doing much more when it came to bolstering up the borders? So what can we take from that as far as how does it actually cut down on the transmission of COVID-19? Uh, well, there's a few ways. I think what we need to realize, though, is that this is in the context of new variants that are circulating globally, and they're popping up in countries all over the world. And, and one of my concerns is that we've restricted travel to Mexico and the Caribbean, but we know that these variants exist elsewhere as well in other countries. So, you know, these are measures to stop importing cases potentially from those regions, but what about the other regions? Um, and what are we really doing uh, to track and stop the spread of, from those places? Uh, do you, what are your thoughts on the, exactly that, that we've stopped the flights uh, that connect Canada to Mexico and the Caribbean, but not other sun destinations uh, such as, say, Florida or Hawaii? Exactly. And, and, you know, from the West Coast, I think that many people who are considering, for example, a spring break um, would look to Arizona or Hawaii first before they would even consider the Caribbean, given how much farther it is away. So it's actually an interesting omission, the United States um, sort of holiday destinations in the plan. And, you know, perhaps there's further 
information to come. But this this seems, given the surging cases still in the United States, um, a bit of an omission, yes. And do you think that the quarantine rules will be effective in that even though we're hearing from the federal government, from the provincial government, that now is not the time to travel, uh, people will still travel. And whether or not they deem it essential, whether it is essential or not, but in making sure somebody takes that PC PC test and quarantines for the three days upon arrival in Canada, waiting for the test results, do you think that's enough to stop if people are, in fact, bringing these very back? It'll definitely help. Like We know now there's a number of gaps in the quarantine system. Right now, people are sent home to quarantine at home, but other household members of their home don't have to quarantine. And so even if people are following the rules to the letter of the law, uh, they could still be transmitting the virus to other people. Uh, we know the new variants are more infectious. So that's a real problem. And, and I think that this new quarantine hotel idea will really help damp that down. There's also another test for people who are who test negative and then will go home and they're followed up on day 10. And that's really important, too, because we know that some people take a while before there's enough in their system to actually register with a positive test. You can be contagious two days prior to even being able to test positive. So, you know, that's that will definitely help with that gap in our current system. Uh, looking at other countries, though, and we talked about this on the program, such as the UK, where the quarantine is 10 days at a government uh, facility, a hotel, and then you're allowed to go back home as long as you've tested negative. Uh, do you think something like that, although it does seem extreme, would be a better way to go? Because even with the fear of huge fines, the fear of possible jail time, there are likely going to be people who maybe bend the rules of quarantine while waiting for that 10-day test? Yes. Personally, I'd like to see the quarantine extended a bit longer because then we can have more confidence that a person is truly negative. Um, Pre-symptomatic and asymptomatic spread have been identified as key parts of the continued pandemic. So steps that we can do to reduce exposure during those critical windows is very important. What more do you think could be done? And if we're specifically talking about traveling and people have been calling in and emailing me as well, asking about interprovincial travel, uh, quarantining within the country of Canada, do you think we need to take more steps? I think we should be talking about it. Yes. You know, we've seen some of the bubbles that happened in the East Coast. And personally, that also helped the tourism industry in those regions stay alive. And there's lots of us in British Columbia who would like to travel to places like Whistler and Vancouver Island. And if we felt more confident that the cases were low and we weren't transmitting the virus, it would, I think, in many cases, be welcome for the tourism industry. But I also think we need to be considering the land border and using things like rapid test strategies, even for people who are essential travelers or people who on their supply chain industry who are driving trucks across the border, um, understanding whether or not those are gaps or are important. And we're really not doing that yet. Right, because the number was something like six, six and a half million people, I think, under that, uh, the, the essential worker designation that have been going across the border throughout this whole pandemic. Uh, I mean, we take that leap of faith and hope that they're being very careful and following all of the rules as far as distancing, uh, wearing masks and that. But do you think rapid testing would, would offer a much needed, I guess, layer, another layer of protection? I think we need to know more about what's happening on that front. Yes. And I, I get it that everybody is working flat out 
And, and those essential services are exactly that essential. Our supply chains wouldn't exist without the United States. So, you know, being careful about what's going on and, and tracking and tracing cases if they are brought in. Right now, we know there's 12 U.S. states reporting the variants of concern. So it's definitely spreading in the U.S. already. So just to make sure that we're not, again, inadvertently bringing these this ver- these versions into Canada is going to be important. And when we look at the international travel again, one of the numbers that was put out today was that we can link about 2% of COVID-19 cases in this country to international travel, which seems like a low number. But again, is it the variants that we should be more concerned about? Uh, yes. So in Ontario, we see what happened when just one person with a variant um, was able to introduce it into a care home. And, you know, that's devastating and it didn't need to happen. So even if numbers are low, just one introduction can cause a real problem if the virus is more infectious. And we still don't know what the variants of concern are all about or how many of them there actually are. So out of an abundance of caution, we need to be really careful right now. And probably we could have been carefuler even a few weeks ago. All right. We will leave it there for today. Uh, Dr. Anne-Marie Nichol, thank you so much for joining us. Okay, thank you. Thanks for being with us. You might have heard this story yesterday. It was about human remains that had been discovered. It had been decades since the unexplained disappearance of a man from the BC interior. We don't know a whole lot about this individual, just that he was last seen in Coquitlam on May 27th, 1967. Yes, 1967. His family reported his disappearance to their local police. That department was in Kamloops and investigated was launched, but there was never anything found until, well, until human remains were found and DNA testing was able to determine exactly who this person was. And joining me to talk about this is Steen Hartson, BCIT DNA expert and forensics instructor. Thanks so much for being with us. Not a problem. I just find things like this fascinating because we see television shows where things miraculously are solved. We know those are not always true to life. But in this case, it seems like DNA expert evidence and the ways of dealing with that and finding out information from that, they've really evolved over the years. Yeah, absolutely. There's been quite a bit of change in the technology over time, and it's gotten a lot better, which has allowed us to get better at recovering DNA from older and older samples. Uh, so, you know, these remains were, were found in an area where you would expect the bone to have gone through some kind of nasty conditions from a scientist's perspective to try and recover DNA. But the technology has gotten better where we're able to get those type of results from remains that have been out there for quite a long time. So if I'm reading this correctly, the unidentified, the human remains were actually found in 1972 uh, over on Saturna Island? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure about the details on that uh, offhand, but uh, yeah, they were quite old. That's that's all I, I'm aware of myself. So how how is it then, something that's been there for so long, uh, he disappeared in 67, remains found in 72, uh, who knows what kind of conditions uh, they've endured, what they've gone through. How How is testing today or how is the technology today able to go to something that's so old and been out in the elements for so long and get that crucial information from it? Well, it's gotten a lot more sensitive. So basically, we're able to generate these DNA profiles. That's what we try and get when we're dealing with human remains. Uh, We're just trying to generate a DNA profile, which shows us some of the genetic markers and the information around, um, you know, who that person's 
uh, what their genetic information would be so we can compare it to either a personal effect or like some kind of swab from that person if it's available in this case that's not going to be possible since you know their remains have been missing for so long um, or a family member which is what you try and do in a case like this and so you look for common genetic traits or genetic markers um, between the remains that you found and family members to do those comparisons and so the technology has allowed us to get better results from less dna which lets us look at some of these older cases and do those comparisons a little bit better. And how much does it have to be to to make you say, yes, absolutely, this person, based on, on how it connected or how it compared with the DNA uh, we gathered from a family member? Uh, what, how much is the match? Uh, well, so that's the decision that the coroner service makes. So as a scientist, what we do is we will provide them with a statistic. And then they will take that statistic and use some other information, like where it was found potentially. I know sometimes when all you have is a bone, all you get is this DNA statistic, and you have to base your decision on that. But in a perfect world, they'll have some more information uh, that might be circumstantial around this identification. And so you can get statistics if you get a close family member, like a, a child or a parent, in the millions uh, or tens of millions when you're doing these types of comparisons. And that would be considered a really strong association. And when you say you might only have a bone, how much does it matter if you have, say, and without getting too gruesome, does it matter if, say, you have a full leg bone, uh, if you have a, a part of a hand, if you, does it matter what you actually have as far as the, the positivity of the results? It does, actually. Some bones are better than others. Uh, so bones that are kind of smaller and more brittle, they're more easily kind of degraded and broken up over time, whereas something like a femur, one of these really big, long, hard bones, they retain the DNA very well in awful conditions for a very long period of time. So when we're trying to do this type of analysis, we really try and focus on the bones that are going to give us the best chance of results. So we look for long bones like your femur and the leg or humerus in your arm, sort of those big, long, thick bones that that's what we'd be looking for, yeah. And what is it that gives you the information? Is it the bone itself? Is it where the marrow is or was? Or is there a part of it that you're looking for? So what we do is we pulverize it into a bone powder. So we'll grind it up just with a little uh, a Dremel tool into very small pieces and then put it into what's called a cryogenic grinder and some liquid nitrogen. So the nitrogen makes it very cold and brittle. And then it grinds it up into a very fine powder. And so then we do all of the rest of our process with that fine powder. So it's not just the marrow. Often there's no marrow left. If it's been you know 50 years, all you get is this dry bone, and there's just that really hard tissue that you'd normally just think of as, as just kind of naked bone. And the DNA is locked in this calcified uh, hard tissue, and that's what we're after. And this only works, obviously, if you have a DNA sample from a family member or from somebody else. So how, is, how important is it in these investigations then, I guess even early on, to make sure that there is a sample taken and something to cross-reference? Yeah, it's critical. So if you can get a, you know, a, a sample from that person, so if they've just gone missing and you can get something like a toothbrush, then that makes life really easy for an investigator because you can do a direct comparison between the remains that are found and this profile from a toothbrush. And then you can get these statistics in the trillions and quadrillions, really, really high numbers that really leave no doubt that it's the same person. Uh, so those are much better than trying to use family members, but often that's not possible. And so the closer the family relationship, the better the statistic, which means the stronger the match and easier it is for a coroner service to make that ID. 
Uh, and then as time goes on and you get, you know, grandchildren or, you know, even further, it becomes much more difficult to try and find those types of associations. So it's definitely useful to try and have those uh, family members give their profiles as soon as possible. And the coroner service does a great job of trying to pull all those together and keep a database that allows them to try and search these remains as they come up against all the different family members who've reported lost loved ones. And I know we've seen cases of this as well with the different websites where people can trace their family history and their background and it actually leading to helping with criminal investigations. Do you see more of that happening as it becomes the technology continues to advance and and you and, and people that do what you do are able to do this kind of testing? Yeah, it seems to be the way things are trending. Obviously, whenever you're dealing with kind of database and genetic information, there's privacy concerns. And so those are something that always have to be taken into consideration when you're making these types of databases and doing these types of comparisons. Uh, But as that data becomes more widely available and you see things like public databases, like the Ancestry.com and 23andMe type things that you know, may be available for use down the road, I can see that being more widely used, especially for humanitarian purposes like identifying unidentified human remains. Uh, you know, that's often the last chance for some of these people to find out what happened to a loved one. And I think, you know, most people would support that type of work. And do you think we're at the point or will we know when we're at the point where we, we've discovered everything that we need to know about DNA evidence and tracing it and matching it? Or is there still, do you think, advances to be made? Uh, there's still stuff changing all the time, actually. It's, a, it's always a, like any other you know, technological field, it's rapidly changing. And uh, you know, forensics is a little bit slower than some of these other fields because we have to keep up with the courts. Anything that gets done, and especially you know, forensic evidence, has to be heavily researched and validated to make sure it's working properly so that you can stand the scrutiny of any kind of court evaluation. Um, but it is still rapidly changing and new technologies are coming out all the time and I expect that to continue and uh, it'll just keep getting better and more sensitive and hopefully make it easier to make these types of identifications and uh, identify all the different individuals in the province who haven't been identified yet. Are there still cases or examples of where the match just isn't strong enough for for you or or the person doing that to call it? Yeah, there are, I think, I don't know the exact number, but I think it's close to 200 current open unidentified cases where they've got remains where they haven't been able to identify them to a specific individual. So there are still quite a few open cases like that. All right. Well, it is a fascinating field. We'll leave it there for today. But thank you so much for joining us to talk about this. Yeah, not a problem.